Welcome to the biggest thing to hit the financial advisory ESG community, environmental, social, and governance. I'm Jonathan Kavaznik, CHFC Wealth Advisor. With over 25 years advisory experience, I've been advising clients so they can make a positive global impact. Hello, and welcome to the ESG Players Podcast with your host, Jonathan Kavaznik, one of the leading ESG advisors in the country. Well, good morning and welcome to our monthly webinar today. I'm Jonathan Kavaznik, and I'll be presenting and hosting our great webinar today on top financial issues facing the millennial generation. Um, I work with Cherokee Investments here at Bank Cherokee. I've been a financial advisor for 29 years, and it's always exciting and um, enlightening to learn a little bit more about what the next generation finds important and challenging in their financial uh, planning and their financial objectives. I think what I'd like to say today is we're going to run about 45 minutes to an hour. And if you have questions, it'd be awesome if you could just put them in the question box and then Landon will uh, retrieve those and he'll be able to ask those. And I would love to have you ask them throughout the presentation so that we can address whatever questions you have at the time that the topic is coming up and that you won't have to hold those until the end. Um, as always, um, the good questions that people ask really make it more interactive and actually more interesting for everyone involved. So please go ahead and do that for us. Um, before I also uh, start out, I'd just like to mention we'll have a replay of this available for those of you who would like to either get the slides or listen to the presentation again in the future. Okay, so I think without uh, any more hesitation, uh, we'll start the presentation. And I, I also, maybe I'll just mention one more idea, which is if you happen to be uh, not a millennial and you're a parent or a grandparent of a millennial, uh, take into mind that these are some great things that the younger people are thinking about and you can give them some guidance if they come to you and ask you for your advice. But also remember a lot of these things actually apply to both the millennial generation and the retiree or the baby boomer generations. And so take from what you can and ask questions that make sense for what you're trying to get out of it. But just keep that thought in mind that if you have others who might be of a different generation, these are great topics and great ideas so that we can kind of interact with the next generation and share with them some good advice and some good guidance. So let's talk about um, Cherokee Investments and uh, how we operate here at Cherokee Investments at Bank Cherokee. One of our focuses is going to be environmental and social governance advising. And so this is a slide just to kind of show you what that means in perspective of we want to do some planning and we want to make sure we meet our financial objectives. But we have a second layer that we always like to address, and that is what are the values of our clients and what is important to them? And then how do we make their investments match those uh, values and those things that are important? So just keep that in mind when we're going through the presentation that this is just the financial planning aspect of it that we're going to talk about and kind of the objectives of your finances. But there's another second layer that we should also keep in mind, and that's how we work here at Cherokee Investments is what can I put those dollars into to achieve my goals from an investment standpoint? So let's talk about the millennial generation. So there's approximately 80 million of them. And what does that mean? Those are people who were born between 1980 and the year 2000, right? And it turns out that they are probably one of the most tech savvy uh, generations and the most highly educated uh, generation. However, it also means that they have challenges that maybe other generations didn't have in regards to things we're going to talk about, which are like debt and finding a good paying job and things of that nature. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about that. So what are the number one challenges for the millennials and for the people who are uh, coming up through the 
school system, an educational system, and trying to get a career path, it's debt. Now, if you think about it, the average debt load for a graduate of college is about $30,000. So that's a pretty good uh, debt that they're accumulating before they even go out into the workplace. And so it's really important when we try to figure out how to do some planning and how to address financial concerns for that generation, how do we address the debt? The second thing is finding a good, stable career. You know, a lot of people are coming out of school with educations, with college degrees. It's very competitive out there to find a career that actually pays well. And so that's a really key step in trying to accomplish the overcoming of the debt they accumulated while they're getting educated, and also then to be able to continue to save for future goals. And also one of the things that the millennials have in question is who can they trust and who shouldn't they trust? And so we're gonna address that a little bit. Sometimes we find that millennials might be a little too conservative in how they're investing. They don't necessarily wanna to be too aggressive. They're a little more comprehensive about loss of their principal. We also wanna talk about how they're gonna save for the future. We wanna talk about rising healthcare costs for not only the millennials, but everyone in general, right? Everyone can see that healthcare costs continue to rise and become a bigger and bigger part of our budget. Um, we also wanna talk about not planning for unforeseen events. Sometimes it's hard when we're younger to understand that there might be things that we hadn't planned for that could set us off track and derail some of our financial planning goals. And then we wanna talk about as the millennials are having families and having children, how important it is to plan for education for those uh, children's needs. So let's talk about that, taking on the debt load. The average millennial has about $30,000 of debt, as I mentioned. However, the average millennial's medium income until the age of 30 is only about $42,000. So you can see from this slide that they're taking on a lot of debt uh, early on in their life from educational needs and things of that nature. However, they're not actually getting very high paying jobs immediately to try to compensate and overcome some of that debt. So let's talk about when you look at your financial planning is what kind of debt have you accumulated and what is your current situation when it comes to student debt or other types of debt that you might've accumulated. So the realities are we really need to figure out between 2004 and 2012, the student debt in the US nearly tripled. And so we need to address that, right? If you look at the slide presentation there, 39% fully understood um, that the burden student debt would have on their future. But 60% kind of regretted that they actually accumulated all that financing and debt while they're in school, not realizing what it would probably do when they got out of the uh, school systems and went to get their careers going and started trying to pay for things like houses and uh, transportation and things of that nature, right? So if you kind of look there, it just gives us a little general idea that 75% made a personal sacrifice um, because of their student debt. And it kind of goes down the list there between delaying purchases and uh, other things that we have to give up because of the debt that we created. So what is the, Best thing we can do if we find ourselves in a situation where we have a lot of student debt or even just debt in general is we need to create a budget and focus on paying down some of that debt. And how do we do that? Well, the first thing we wanna do is we wanna focus on the smaller debt payments. So maybe we have a little account somewhere that has not as much debt on it. We wanna eliminate that so we don't have the hassle of every month worrying about making that extra payment over on a smaller amount, worrying about what's going on with that specific interest rate or that specific type of an account and whether or not it's changing. 
So the first key thing is we want to focus on the small debt. That's the best way we can create a budget and do that to kind of get ourselves out of that situation. The second thing is we want to focus on high interest rates. Just as an example, last week, a client came in and they had some debt on a credit card. Well, the credit card was at 21%. They're able to come in and utilize an ability to transfer that debt to another credit card by applying for a new one with zero interest and reduce that interest rate at least for the next 12 to 18 months. So again, if you find yourself in a situation where you're either in a situation where you've accumulated a lot of debt or you have children or grandchildren that you know of that are trying to get out of that debt and they're doing some planning, try to focus on the higher interest rate account so that you can eliminate the fact that most of the money then uh, is now going to pay the interest rather than to try to pay off the principal, right? You could use automatic payments, which is really key. Sometimes you get to the end of the month and you're not sure you have enough money to actually make the payments. It's good to put the debt on an automatic payment so that every month, you know you're making that minimal payment or maybe you can add a little bit extra so you pay more off of the debt, but using an automatic payment would really help. And then the last piece to help budget is if you're thinking about getting a new vehicle, even though it's nice to have new vehicles, if you can make it a little bit longer, it can really help in paying down debt if you delay a purchase of a new car, um, rather than going out and buying a new car, you could even consider buying a used car. So many cars are coming off leases where they're three or four years old. It's a great opportunity to get a nice car still, but at a very reduced price, and that can help you eliminate your debt by trying to put together a budget, but maybe settling for something a little different when you're utilizing uh, new purchases when it comes to vehicles and uh, using the automatic payments to keep making monthly payments on debt, focus high, high interest rates, and then focus on the small uh, debt amount accounts. So let's look at what really matters when we're trying to either get out of debt or avoid expensive accounts, right? Your, your credit score is really key uh, to the type of credit that you're gonna apply for and get. And it's also key going forward as you expand into buying automobiles or you expand into buying a, a home or you expand into buying a rental property or a vacation property, the credit score is really important. And so from the slide here, you can see that 700 is really the goal. If we can get to that 700 plus mark, that tells us that we're gonna get better offers when it comes to applying for credit and it'll allow us to transfer maybe some of our debt that's at higher interest rates to lower rates when we apply for those new vehicles that will let us do that. Okay, so getting out of debt and avoiding the expensive card behavior. So one of the things that really can set us back is if you had a difficult time finding a job and you had a difficult time increasing your income to overcome some of the debt you accumulated is to avoid the late payments and the overpayment uh, late fees uh, for going over limits, right? A lot of times people have credit cards and they have them to the maximum that they're allowed to use. And what they don't recognize is if they go over that limit, they get hit with a fee just for going over the limit, and they're also then going to pay very high interest rate on those credit cards. We want to keep the interest rates as low as possible, and we want to avoid getting into very expensive credit cards and having debt accumulate on those. So again, avoid late payment fees. Shop around for the best interest rates between credit card companies. Another way to keep your credit card score high is don't use more than 30% of the limit, right? So if you have a $10,000 credit limit on a credit card, you know, try not to go over a $3,000 monthly purchase, or at least if you go over that, then try to pay it off every month so that you can get that balance back down. Because you really don't want to go above that threshold 
because again, it'll hurt your overall credit score and your ability to manage your debt going forward. So this is a very interesting chart about what are the best jobs and uh, are, are out there. So a lot of times it's been difficult for people coming out of college because it's been so competitive to actually find a good paying job coming right out of school. And sometimes we have to settle uh, when we get out of school or when we get that first job for a lower paying job. But if you can look at the chart here, it'll explain to you a little bit about what are the better paying jobs that are out there in relationship to other career jobs, okay? So we think about it that some of the careers that revolve around people, whether it's uh, being a psychologist, being a mechanic, doing some of the trades, being a teacher, it's very hard for technology and computers to replace those fields of uh, industries and those career paths. And this is a great chart that kind of shows you in the highlighted yellow is the job growth is highlighted as to which jobs are going to uh, provide us with a much higher opportunity in the future for career growth. So think about it, finding a good paying stable career, what are the best jobs out there? Um, this is a great chart that'll explain that to us and kind of show us that we wanna be in industries where it's people involved. Uh, and therefore, if there's people involved, it's very hard for the computer and technology to mimic that and, and therefore it's a better opportunity for you and I to have a job and a career and continue to increase our income potential. So let's look at finding a good paying uh, job and where they are uh, located. So you can see from the map, um, interestingly enough, from this study that uh, Minneapolis is one of the great places to be looking for a career as a young individual or even looking for a career in general, that our, our job market here is very strong. Other places would be Seattle, Houston, uh, Washington, DC, and Boston, but you can kind of see almost all the other ones are on the coast, uh, except for us are in the middle, and um, Detroit is also on the map now, because um, a lot of things are going on with the younger generation with technology and urbanization and places where they want to work. So. This is another thing to keep in mind if you're willing to relocate, if the person's willing to change where they live. Here's the opportunities in these communities that are really looking for paying uh, stable jobs. And the other thing that we'll look at here is if you're not happy with your current uh, situation and you thought about going into the trades is that the workforce in the trade industry is actually quite old relative to the overall workforce. So if you think about it on this chart, you can kind of see that electricians and electronic repair people, that a lot of them are over age 45, right? Over 60% and over 35% are over 45. So if we want to look at it that way, it's really important to think about a career path and people who are been in it a long time and that that is an aged occupation, that might be a great opportunity for uh, us to look at as a career path for the younger generation coming in, or just to think about going into the trades rather than going into management or some of the other corporate uh, industries. So when you land the job, um, one of the things that we wanna think about is once you find a career and once you're able to land that good paying job, or at least a job where you have some excess capital, these are the things that we wanna kinda do first, right? We wanna make sure that we're starting to save a little bit for a rainy day. Uh, we wanna make sure that we're saving for our retirement. So what we wanna look at is taking advantage of the company's 401k plan once you're up and running in that career. Why is that important? Because things don't get any easier as you get older. And so 
an opportunity exists when you're coming out of school or when you're getting your new career or when you're changing careers and you have an increase in pay, an opportunity is there to invest in the 401k plan of that company and potentially get a match, but then have that opportunity and that window of time to start saving for your own future and your own retirement. Another uh, idea that we want to keep in mind is increasing our deferral each year, right? So we start out with whatever may be a match. Maybe it starts at 4%, and then we want to increase that to 5% next year and 6%. And kind of automatically, as our income is growing and our ability to earn money is growing, is to kind of increase how much we're saving. And then we also, typically, the younger we are, the more aggressive we want to be. So if you look at the slide here, it says choose a maximum or aggressive growth fund, right, or portfolio. And the reason we want to do that is the longer time we have, the more aggressive we can be typically. And there's always um, a personalized uh, decision to be made as to whether or not that's right for you. So as a general rule, this makes sense. But you, again, you might be a kind of investor who doesn't like to take a lot of risk, and therefore you may never be in a growth portfolio. But just as an idea is, as you're paying off uh, maybe some debt you got from student loans, as you're trying to get rid of some debt that you might have for other reasons, when you get that career going and you get that job, is you really want to take advantage of investing in the retirement plans, getting the match, and having some money go towards the future, and not just focusing 100% on, I got to pay down debt, or I got to spend everything now, I don't have any excess, right? So let's look at that, um, and not delaying, because sometimes people will say, well, I think I'll get my career going, or I'll make a job change, and I'll increase my pay, and then when things settle down, I'll start saving for my retirement in my future. I have a long time till I get there. Well, if you look at the difference between the two approaches, which is the first approach says, I'm going to attribute uh, 6%, right, which is $200 a month on a typical pay, or I'm going to contribute 3%, which turns out to be, you know, half that amount, $100. It makes a huge difference when the money compounds over the lifeline of a career, right? So if you're earning $40,000 a year, and this example shows in you have a 6% savings rate, you're going to have almost double the amount of money when you go to retire than if you cut back and you said, I'm going to wait or I'm going to delay. So it's really kind of key is to get that going soon and get the money going into the retirement account or into a savings plan or investment account uh, so that you can take advantage of the compounding of the money, right? And be able to have that growing so that you know that you're using your money to make money. So let's determine your risk tolerance. So a lot of people have different levels of risk and some people like to take different risk tolerances into factor as to how they're gonna invest their money. Some of it's personal, some of it, they might just decide I'm gonna take a questionnaire and I'm gonna decide. So, you know, you're likely if you're a younger individual and you're under uh, 40, you're gonna have a long time to have the money invested. If you're a millennial and you're coming into the workforce and you're just getting everything up and running, um, you're going to have a long time. And so you want to be able to ride the up and downs of the market. So here's how a 401k plan kind of shows you on the pie chart there is do-it-yourselfers are more likely to invest too timidly, right? So they're kind of showing us the dark is the people who had some sort of guidance and the light blue is the people who kind of did it on their own. And so you can see that when you take too little risk and people who did it on their own, 18% of the investors who did it on their own were actually taking too little risk. And if you look at the appropriate risk, 85% who had guidance and got some input were actually on track to take the appropriate level of risk based on their tolerance. And if you look at people who took too much risk, it typically is going to be the ones who didn't get any guidance 
because they don't have any way to evaluate whether professionally they're on track or off track from a risk standpoint. So just take this into account. It kind of shows you that if you can get a little guidance from somebody, whether it's a financial advisor or the provider of your retirement plan, um, it really helps to keep you on track to understand your risk tolerance and to make sure that you're taking the risk that's appropriate for what you're comfortable with um, and, and takes into account the differences that it really matters if you can get yourself to take the right risk and how your portfolio is going to perform. So one of the things that comes up a lot when people are trying to get out of debt and are trying to eliminate things that they've expended money on, or maybe they decide that they want to do a remodel or they want to expand the house or they want to get money from a place that is the 401k plan. And so you can see it's not the best place in the world to be borrowing. And it's really a good idea if you can avoid doing that, right? So why is that the case? Because if you think about money that you borrow from your 401k plan, um, it's amounts borrowed are no longer benefiting from the tax deferral growth, right? So if I come and I say I need $40,000 because I'm going to do a remodel on my house, or I want to take $40,000 out of the retirement plan, that is going to cause me to no longer have that money in the plan, tax deferred, earning a rate of return, right? The second reason I really don't want to borrow from my 401k plan is because the amount not paid back in less than five years will be considered a distribution. So where that could come into play is it sounds like a good idea when you take the money out and you borrow it and it doesn't become a taxable event because you can borrow against your retirement account. But what happens if you either change employers or you lose your job and you haven't paid back that money or you can't afford to pay it back within the next five years, it's going to be considered a taxable event and cause you to take an early distribution, right? And the last thing is that some plans uh, will require you to stop contributing your own money once um, you borrow, right? So until you pay that loan off, you aren't going to be able to continue to contribute and you don't really want to have that opportunity disappear where you can't contribute to the plan because you borrowed from it, right? So again, if you lose or quit your job, that's kind of the biggest thing out there that we want to be aware of. And, and we don't really want to borrow from retirement plans that we can avoid it because of that. If something happens unforeseen, you only have 60 days until you have to really replace the money. And probably when you're unemployed or something changed in your work environment, um, that's probably not going to be the easiest time to come up with extra cash to be able to replace the money that you borrowed from the retirement plan. So we really want to avoid borrowing from our retirement plan to pay down debt or to do projects uh, in, in most cases uh, when we can avoid it. Right? So here we go as a good example of the effects of borrowing from your 401k plan. So here's a good example of somebody who borrowed from the 401k plan. They were contributing $6,000 a year and it was growing by 8%. But then the 11th year there, you see the red line, they decided to take a loan against the plan. Right? So they decided to borrow and they decided to borrow $40,000 from the plan. And by doing so, they took that money out of the opportunity for that money to grow. And so you can see that it is um, a huge difference in the course of the time from removing that money from the plan as a loan and then allowing it not to grow uh, to the full of its ability. And the difference you can see from the example is, had you just continued to uh, contribute and had you not borrowed from the plan, you'd have $680,000 in there at an 8% return. But because you borrowed, really, there's the true cost of the re rate of return that you missed out on 
by borrowing from the plan and thinking there was no cost, you can see how much less. You have 530,000 in the plan at the end of the timeline in comparison, just because of you taking a loan out against the plan, okay? So that's finding uh, a good way to find um, a good pay and stable career, right? So a 36-year-old Leslie decides to cash out her old 401k plan. So here's another uh, example of why it's not a good idea to just say, well, maybe I shouldn't borrow against the plan, but the only money I have really is my retirement plan. I think I'm just gonna borrow against it, right? And what you're gonna find out is, here's the example is, the federal and state taxes of $32,000 are withheld if somebody takes a $16,000 balance and cashes it out. And why is that? Because there's a mandatory 20% withholding. So you can see it's not a good idea for a young person or anyone really under the age of 59 and a half to cash out their retirement plan in order to meet their financial goals today um, by paying these penalties and paying these taxes. You can see, because Leslie or any individual who's under 59 and a half is gonna be subject also to the 10% IRS penalty. So not only are we gonna be subject to federal and state taxes of $3,200 that are withheld, we're gonna be subject to a $1,600, 10% IRS penalty that's gonna be taken from us that is also gonna get paid in. So you can see, it, we really believe that we had a $16,000 account value and when it's all said and done, what are we left with? We're left with $11,200 that we can actually go out and spend. And it feels like it would be smarter to leave the $16,000 in our account so that it can earn return on that value rather than get left with only $11,200 after all the taxes and penalties. So again, it's really not the best place to go when we're trying to get immediate cash is to invade our retirement plans. Those are kind of there uh, in a real extreme emergency potentially, but not to really just say, I'm gonna expand uh, my house or I'm gonna make a remodel or I'm gonna get a new car, or I'm gonna take a vacation. It's a very poor place uh, to really look at for um, getting cash. All right, so one of the things that uh, I would say a lot of people in general have um, the question of who can they trust. The millennials actually have a very high distrust of deciding who they can trust. And so if we think about growing up as a millennial, it shapes how they interact with information. And so because there is so much information out there on social media and the internet and electronically, it turns out that the millennials have a very uh, high tendency not to have trust when it comes to getting advice. So here's the high financial literacy by generation. It also is interesting to note that the millennials and the Generation X and the younger uh, generations, that they're financially the least literate. They understand the least amount finances, yet they're the or organized group of people that have the least interest in trusting people. And so we're gonna talk about that a little bit because the millennials, uh, the younger generations control a lot of wealth um, and they have to make a lot of financial decisions, but when they do the survey here, they find out that they're the least population of age that understands financial literacy of all the groups. And the oldest generation, which they call here the silent generation, has the highest understanding of finances and they have the highest level of trust. So we have to kind of understand that as well is that when you look at where are people getting their information from and how do they build their trust uh, and understanding where the information comes from, 
It's really based on age category between, on the far left there, we have the mature generation. And you can kind of see the circle there is friends and relatives is where uh, most of the generation Y and the millennials get their information from that they trust. The mature generation is saying that they get most of their information that they trust, 23% there is from TV, radio, talk shows, right? But that's not where really where uh, a majority of the younger generation is looking for is from advice. So think about that in the green there. It kind of shows that professional investment advisors, the mature generation, 21% of the time uh, on the left column there looks for the professional. But when we get to the far right, the generation Y, it's only 10% of the generation Y looks to financial professionals for uh, trust and advice. They find theirs from friends, relatives, and colleagues, more so than getting it from a professional. So let's talk about uh, a study that says, who can you trust and why trust is important? And it's really a key factor in our individual performance of our portfolios and how we achieve our goals as to where we seek advice from. So if you look at this Dalbar study that the average stock investor who chose to be on their own earned 3.9% versus an unmanaged portfolio of 7.1 or 7.81, right? And this is due to emotions. The fact that when people who are younger who don't necessarily want professional guidance and they take information and they try to evaluate it from different sources on their own, it requires them to have much more emotion in and because of that emotion, they move their money more often. And by moving their money more often, you can see that the average equity investor is only going to earn 3.9%. And the unmanaged, where somebody who actually puts it somewhere and lets it do its thing and doesn't have to micromanage it, earns 7.81. And why is that important? Because you can see how it translates. Is if I'm trying to manage my own portfolio and I'm very micromanaged and I'm day trading or I'm looking at it on a constant basis, always trying to figure out the tops and the bottoms, I would have only $198,600 at the end of the 20-year cycle. However, if I just picked good quality uh, advice and, and had good quality investments, I'd have $450,000 at the end of the 20-year cycle based on the historical rate of returns. So again, it's kind of key is finding good advice, but also thinking about if you micromanage it too much, which is very high tendencies of younger generations and younger people, is it actually hurts our performance, even though they might believe and we might think it would help. It doesn't, right? Another thing is taking too conservative approach to investing. So again, without having a lot of knowledge and information, uh, a lot of times people are hesitant to allocate too much of their portfolio to a growth or to a stock or to something that they either A, might not fully understand or B, haven't really realized that objectively it makes sense to be more aggressive when I'm younger, right? So you can kind of see here from the non-millennials and the millennials that young adults allocate less than a third of the portfolio to stocks. A lot of them like to hold cash and they hold the cash because they don't necessarily have the understanding of why that doesn't make sense but they also don't have the a desire to go and seek professional advice. And because of that, the non-millennials have so much more in equities and stocks, you can see by the pie chart, that the non-millennials will have 46% compared to the millennials who have 28. 
And it seems like it should be the opposite, right? That it should be the older I am, the less I have in equities. But what it's telling us is that the younger generation, the millennials, and those who are seeking advice through friends and family and online sources are hesitant to actually commit then to investing in a more growth-oriented way because they're not sure if they're making the right decision and therefore they invest too conservative. Right? And what happens if we do it too conservative? We have to think about, we're trying to invest for the long haul, right? So if you look at the top circle, we're starting there, we're gonna invest for the long haul, which means we wanna invest for growth. We have to know ourselves and understand what our tolerance is though. And that way we can come up with whether or not we should have more or less exposure to the equity markets. But we also want to diversify then, right? And so we need to get advice and feedback and understand the marketplaces so we're diversified for the ups and downs. And then we wanna review that um, and then we recommend, and most advising uh, institutions would recommend, you want to review that annually uh, to make sure you're still doing the right things and that you're on track, but we don't want to really review our allocations and how our money is invested you know, on a daily or weekly basis, because you could saw from a previous slide, that's how we get into trouble, by moving money too often and trying to time things end up hurting us rather than helping us. So let's talk about taking an approach that's too conservative to investing. And what we really wanna do, as you can see here, is we want to embrace a consistent automatic plan. And one of the ways we can easily do this is if we're not retired already, and we have a retirement plan through work, this is a great slide that kind of shows us that we're automatically adding on a regular basis, right? We're automatically investing into the marketplace because it's going through our retirement plan and it's going out of our payroll and it's going into the marketplace and it's doing it at a different price and a different point, which in the long term is really helping us, right? So when the market has a decline, you can kind of see we're getting more shares. And when the market has an increase, we might be getting less shares. But when we average it out, it gives us the opportunity not to worry about what's going on in the markets uh, on a weekly or monthly basis, but to actually just know that we need to save and that we're going to get the benefit of the markets moving by doing a system like this where we're automatically investing, we're getting an average share price, and in the long run, that's gonna really benefit us. Okay. Now, I just wanna stop and just mention if anyone has any questions on allocation or any of these uh, types of charts, uh, feel free to put it into the question box. Uh, this is really a key part to, once we figure out that we gotta get a handle on our planning and get a handle on some of our debt if we happen to have it, and now we have some excess funds to save. You know, how are we going to allocate that money and what makes the most sense for your personal situation and your risk tolerance? But I want to kind of dive in here for a minute about the approaches that we would use and trying to figure out what's the appropriate allocation. And again, if you have a question in this area, feel free to just put it in the question box and we'll try to address it uh, so you can get the answers you're looking for. Okay. So if we look here, um, we want to create an age and risk appropriate asset allocation, right? And so the blue is the stocks, the gray is the bonds, and the yellow is the cash. And what are they trying to explain to us here is that the older I become and the closer I am to needing the funds, the less stocks or equities I'm gonna have in my portfolio, right? So this is kind of a general rule of thumb that we're saying is, this is the pie chart that maybe would make sense, 85% uh, or so in the equity market on a 25-year-old. But on a 65-year-old, we probably don't want to have more than half of our portfolio in the equities market or in stocks. 
and then trying to figure out based on our personal uh, beliefs and preference and tolerances if these are right or if we need to tweak those uh, over aggressive or under aggressive depending on how you feel. So this is what we want to look at when we're trying to figure out how we can allocate our retirement plans, our 401k plans, but also our personal investments as well. So let's talk about the different styles that we can have, right? So we want to figure out if an asset allocation uh, is appropriate for you and at what level. And one of the things that um, is important to keep in mind is that most of our return, over 90% of our rate of return is going to come from the allocation of the asset we choose, right? Whether we choose fixed income or small stocks or large stocks or medium kind of companies or dividend paying companies, over 90% of the return comes from the category we choose, not necessarily the individual securities we choose. So again, we want to look at this uh, graph here and kind of evaluate our timeline is important and our age is important, right? So on the far left there, you can kind of see it says short term. So if we have short term goals that are three years or less, we have a lot uh, of stuff in cash and we have a lot of our investments that are not in the stock market. And if we go towards the right, where we have an aggressive plan, that's gonna be if we can have over 15 years before we need the funds, we wanna get some growth and it has a good chance of growing, but we also need to have that time to help us minimize some of the risk tolerance uh, problems we might have with the market volatility. So the question always comes up is, well, why are we saving, right? And the reason we're saving is because we have to determine uh, in our planning, where are we gonna get our future income from if we decide we're gonna uh, be able to retire and we decide we're not gonna work anymore, we're gonna have to have sources, right? And so the question becomes is, is Social Security going to be there for us? If it is, is it going to get reduced? Or is my 401k plan, if I'm doing a good job of saving, is that going to be enough? Or am I going to come up short there? And are there other accounts that I may have done, like an IRA or other investment accounts? And if I combine that with my 401k plan, whether or not I'm on track, right? So we want to keep all of these things in mind when we're saving for our future. So let's take a quick... Uh, step here and kind of look at savings vehicles for the retirement. So a lot of people are always questioning whether or not I should do a traditional IRA or a Roth IRA. And then it turns out that they may not realize that in their retirement plan through their employer, a lot of opportunity exists for doing the same thing in the retirement plan. Whether you could do it as the pre-tax 401k and get a deduction or do it as the Roth 401k and get the benefits of the tax-free um, growth on the 401k plan. And so these are the areas that we want to address when we're saying I have an opportunity, I have the ability now to save for retirement, or I'm dedicated to, I'm gonna put some money into my retirement accounts and I need it to grow, regardless of what I have in the immediate uh, needs. Here's the categories, the 401k plan, whether it's Roth or traditional IRAs, or whether it's pre-tax 401k or Roth 401k. We want to take all these into account and figure out the pros and cons, whether there's a match, right? Typically, we're not going to get a match on our, our IRA that we're doing on our own, but we don't want to necessarily forgo the match in the 401k plan just because we want our own traditional IRA. So let's think about that and look at that and evaluate, you know, what are the best places for our funds to go? And then we can look at the investment vehicles once we determine of these four quadrants, which ones meet the needs the best.
Right, so another area that is a big expense, uh, not only for millennials and uh, the younger generations, but for all of us, and that is healthcare, right? So in 2018, um, there is a penalty that they instilled if I'm not on Medicare or Medicaid and I don't take uh, and sign up for healthcare insurance, um, I get a penalty, right? So again, a lot of people have plans to work, of course, they're not going to uh, be subject to any type of penalty for not enrolling. But others who have the uh, need to have their own individual health care plan, the rules change, and we really needed to either have an exemption as to why we didn't enroll, or we get penalized for not enrolling. So we want to be really aware of that because a lot of our money each month could go to pay health care costs for health care insurance. And we want to make sure we have the right plan and the right coverage based on your situation because it's really gonna be a big chunk of our budget, right? So the Affordable Care Act, uh, you know, that they came out with kind of talked about the lowest premiums and the different tiers. I'm not gonna spend much time on this. Just want to mention that, you know, your employer plan um, compared to trying to get your own healthcare coverage, it's worth checking out to just make sure whether or not you could benefit from a standalone uh, insurance healthcare plan for you and your household or for you and a spouse. Um, or you and a partner, but we just want to make sure we're evaluating all that. And that came in with the Affordable Care Act. One of the areas that is a, a real hidden gem, if you can take advantage of this, uh, is called a health savings account. And so sometimes people don't recognize the fact that if they were having a high deductible plan through their employer or on their own, there's a way for us to actually save some money pre-tax that doesn't show up on our income taxes this year uh, for federal taxes, right? Um, but utilize that money then tax-free for any health uh, care expenses. So let's just take a minute, we'll run over this briefly, is money placed into an HSA account on the left side there, it is, is not taxed, right? It goes in there, you don't have to uh, claim it as income, but it goes in there as uh, pre-tax money if you can place it into a health savings account. Money grows in the account and it doesn't get taxed as it grows. So another big advantage of right having a health savings account is the money's sheltered inside a health savings account and it's growing tax free potentially if I use it for medical expenses, but certainly then at a minimum tax deferred. So again, this might help us if we're doing things in our financial um, life periodically where we would like years where we don't have as much income to show or where we don't wanna pay more taxes on uh, our return on our investments. This is a great way to shelter some of that, right? And an HSA, not taxed if we use it for medical expenses. So that's another great thing, right? So we can withdraw the money from an HSA account, but if you look at the slide, if we needed to use our IRAs, our 401k plans, our 403Bs, and we wanna draw those out for medical expenses, we're gonna get taxed on that. So it's a huge advantage to think about it and try to utilize health savings accounts when we're looking at ways to de, uh, reduce our tax liability, ways to help pay for our medical expenses, but how about using money that we didn't have to pay taxes on on our medical expenses? If you have a high deductible health insurance plan, this is a great advantage that you can take on getting money in pre-taxed, potentially grow it without paying taxes on it ever if you use it for medical expenses. So it's really important if you're kind of utilizing uh, paying down some debt, or maybe you're just paying yourself so you can build up some non-retirement accounts for 
intermediate ki kinds of savings needs? Well, contributing each paycheck uh, to your HSA account is a huge way to out of sight, out of mind, kind of build that up, right? So again, if you can start with a $20, let's say per paycheck, build it up by uh, increasing that a little bit each year. In a couple of years, you'll have quite a bit of money. You'll have close to maybe $1,000 in three years that you could utilize then to pay deductibles on your health uh, care needs. You could use it to go to the dentist uh, for deductibles, for eyeglassware, uh, for contact lenses, but you won't have to pay income taxes on it. And the beauty of that health savings account is you don't lose it for not using it in a calendar year, like some other types of plans. So keep that in mind when you're doing your uh, benefits or when you're thinking about planning and you're trying to figure out what's the best way for me to achieve paying less in taxes, being able to save for my future, and being able to have money invested. A health savings account could be a great opportunity for you to, to take advantage of that, right? So again, if, if you're on your parents' plan and you're under 26 years old, that's great. But once we turn 26, our children have to be removed from either uh, our plan or they have to get their own plan or they have to go on their employer's plan. But again, the rule says at age 26, the family plan uh, doesn't allow the children to stay on once a child is age 26 or older. One of the biggest risks that uh, we all could face uh, is unforeseen events, right? So again, when we're younger in our 20s and 30s, we wanna think about things that we might not have expected. And that would be things like protecting our possessions uh, that we have as renters or protecting a home if we own a home, making sure our coverage is sufficient. We also wanna make sure that if we uh, sustain some sort of injury, we have disability insurance, right? So the younger I am, the more invincible I feel. But again, we wanna make sure that we're protecting ourselves. You know, protecting your income um, is really important because it's hard to pay your bills if you get hurt and you can't work. And most likely, if you're at a larger employer, you're gonna have some sort of group benefit you can get into. But if you don't, you really wanna make sure that you can have at least 70% of your income, you know, available should you need to um, have an issue. And you might get that through your employer, but then you might not. So again, we wanna make sure we cover your bases and when you're doing your thought process on whatever's important to think about, just making sure you're planning for unforeseen events. All right, so um, everyone should also think about uh, planning for their future as far as if something unforeseen happened where you got sick or you uh, get, got ill or you had passed away or you had a, something tragic happen. So again, every age group really should think about having a will and uh, making sure that you don't necessarily um, have to know what assets are gonna end up being passed along. But it's a good idea as you're accumulating your assets is to make sure that you have beneficiaries on your accounts and that you make sure that you plan for unforeseen, unforeseen events by maybe drafting a will in case something tragic happened, at least you would know that your assets are gonna pass the way you like them and not pass along the way that the state would determine that they should pass along. You know, and again, one of the things that parents might wanna consider for their children because uh, again, for your adult children, is once your millennials and your adult children are off on their own, a parent really doesn't have the right or the ability to inquire for medical reasons or to access their investment accounts. And so a power of attorney or a medical directive might be a nice thing to think about as a parent to get into place so that you can take advantage of that. Maybe your child's out of town and they get injured or they end up hospitalized, you'll be able to use your medical directive uh, power of attorney 
to inquire and make sure that you can know what's going on, especially when we have children who may not be uh, married yet uh, or don't have significant others. Who are they going to rely on uh, if you and I as the parent no longer have authority over them since they're not minors? So again, really important to think about that as things progress and your children get older. Uh, you could probably try to go online and do a will. There's a little slide here about that. I would recommend having an attorney draft it um, to make sure it's legalized and that it's correct for the state of Minnesota. Um, the next piece we're going to briefly go over is we're just going to talk a little bit about um, young children and providing for education for them, right? So again, we want to make sure as we're moving into the uh, years where either we're trying to pay for our children's education or our children are having children now, and there's the grandkids that we're trying to figure out how we're going to pay for education, is creating a plan of action to be able to save for that. And so you can do that through you know, college education funds. Um, the best thing to keep in mind is we want to kind of have a balance, right? So we would agree that we want to take full advantage of our retirement plans, our 401k plans, IRAs, and things of that nature, because there's some special um, benefits, whether it's matching or taxes. And we want to save you know, for our own needs, but we also want to make sure that we're thinking about how can we do at the same time saving for children's education, all right? Because the question becomes then is, do we know how financial aid formulas work, right? So we want to keep in mind that assets and retirement accounts are typically going to be not included in the financial aid reports. Again, so if I have an IRA or my child has an IRA and they're applying for financial aid, it's great to have money that's sheltered in retirement accounts because they typically don't end up in the formulas uh, for getting financial aid for people who are trying to get uh, that for college, right? A 401k plan though is the least accessible. And so that's kind of the, the trade-off is once we've committed to the retirement plan, we have to make a determination of, well, I sheltered it. And so now I'm gonna maybe make it great for my children or my grandchildren to get financial aid because we all sheltered our money into the retirement plan, but it also means it'd be very difficult in a sense for us to remove that money should we have an emergency and need it uh, for a different reason, right? So determine if you should open up a retirement uh, account, uh, uh, that's fine, but now we wanna also determine if we should open up a 529 plan, right? Again, the benefit of the 529 plan briefly, it's gonna grow in an account, it's gonna have an investment uh, uh, part to it, and then we're going to be able to have that money grow tax-free to be able to utilize it for school uh, expenses, tuition, room and board, books and such of that. So really important to take advantage of that, having a tax advantage versus a taxable. So this slide kind of just shows us the advantages and the value of the account between having it be tax deferred and potentially tax-free. There's a huge amount of extra money that's gonna get used for college tuition or college expenses in the 529 plan that we wouldn't get if we just did it in a regular investment account. So let's think about it, a summary here, paying down our debts if we have some is we wanna get the smallest debts first. We want debts with the highest interest rates. You wanna avoid at all costs, expensive credit cards with high interest rates, paying late fees. And we wanna get our credit cards, our credit score up to 700 so we can get credit at a very reasonable interest rate when we need it. We wanna save up for priorities like as an emergency fund at the same time, right? So if we think about it, 
have at least three to six months of living expenses. We want to contribute to our retirement plan. Think about starting a house savings account and think about if we're utilizing all of those to maybe even start our own IRA or Roth IRAs and college savings plans for uh, children and grandchildren. We want to be sure that we don't follow the rule of cashing out 401k plans, right? If you have an opportunity uh, where you change employers, you don't want to roll over that plan either the new employer's plan or to your own IRA. You want to take advantage of understanding asset allocation and how to allocate your funds properly in the 401k plan. Have a basic plan, right? Put together a plan so you have a roadmap and you can kind of divide between saving for retirement, saving for educational needs, saving for other priorities. We want to protect our family, whether we create wills and trusts, have the right insurances in place, the right paperwork so that we know that if something unforeseen happens, things will go smoothly for our children and grandchildren. And we want to set some achievable goals. And then if we get to those, we want to be able to say, great, we made it, give ourselves a reward for continuing to stay on track. Here's a little bit of a disclosure. Um, I'm just going to mention uh, that Everything we discussed today, of course, is no tax advice. I'm not a tax advisor. And for uh, compliance, that we're not a deposit of the bank and that anything we talk about or discuss is not connected to bank Cherokee accounts, but actually connected to an investment account. So that kind of completes our formal uh, presentation. I'm going to open it up and see if anyone has any questions at the moment. Um, but I think you can kind of get the idea. We want to pay down that debt. We want to help our younger people understand how important it is not to accumulate that debt. And then we want to really start saving for our intermediate goals as well as our long-term goals at the same time. But I think this will help you explain not only for your own situation, but to others who are younger, the importance of these uh, ideas and strategies so that we can give them some guidance. Um, so with that, I'm just going to take a pause here and see if there's any questions. I am looking to see, and uh, I don't think there actually is any questions. Um, Landon, I, do you see any questions? No questions at this time, John. Excellent. Well, excellent. So again, uh, I'm here at Cherokee uh, Bank with Cherokee Investments. Uh, I cover the different uh, branches of Cherokee Bank. Um, you can contact me. Uh, through the website at www.bankcherokee.com. You could send me an email. You can talk to your banker. Um, but if you have any financial questions or any desires to follow up on any of the information we talked about or have financial goals you'd like to review, just reach out to us. We'd be happy to help you. Um, and then tune in next month. We're going to have another webinar, uh, and it'll be very exciting and interesting. And hopefully, uh, you'll be able to tune in and make that as well. We'll announce that date. Uh, when we get that ready to go for the month of June. So again, thank you for joining us today. I appreciate your time and look forward to seeing you in the future. If you have any questions, please contact Jonathan Kavaznik at jkavaznik, that's K-V-A-S-N-I-K, at securitiesamerica.com. ESG Players Podcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, and many other platforms. Securities offered through Securities America, Inc., member FINRA, SIPC, Jonathan B. Kavaznik, CHFC, registered representative, advisory services offered through Securities America, 
Alaska Advisories, Inc., Cherokee Investment Services, Bank Cherokee, and Securities America are separate companies, not FDIC insured, no bank guarantees, may lose value, not insured by any government agency, not bank deposits.